Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Mark. Glory Glory to you, Lord Christ. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Welcome, everyone. Good morning. Let me pray for us as we begin. Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It's the third Sunday in the season of Epiphany. We're in a series on the book of Philippians. And when I began this series a couple of weeks ago in our passage, I told you at the beginning of chapter one, at the end of chapter one, there's a, a bookend reference to joy. And Paul does that here again in chapter two. He begins in verse two with the command, make my joy complete. And then he ends our passage in verse 17 and 18 saying, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you and you should be glad and you should rejoice also. And he says this in a passage about relationships. So we should ask ourselves this morning, do we know relationships? joy in our relationships right now? Are there relationships in your life in in which you don't know joy, in which they're truly joyless for you, for others? And I didn't preach last Sunday in part because I'd been out of town all week on a, my annual pastor accountability and encouragement retreat. It was in California and I went surfing. I know what some of you are thinking because of my past history and no, I did not injure myself surfing. But I was always sitting out there on the board, waves rolling, and I thought, this is probably going to be an injury illustration, but it's not. I didn't injure myself, but I did learn something, and that is that surfing's not fun. It's just not fun, <laughs> especially for those who are not good at surfing. What happens is you, know, you begin to paddle out, and you have to paddle out so far, and, and the waves are rolling at you, and you're lying on your stomach on the board. And when the waves come at you, you have to push up in a Superman-like position in order for the waves to come at you and you to crest them and roll over them if they're not breaking at that point. If they are breaking, you roll over on your back underneath the surfboard and you hold on with your hands and your feet and they break over you. And that was all the instruction that I got from my California friends before we went out and surfed in this freezing cold water. And so we paddled out 400 yards. I was exhausted. It's probably the furthest out in the ocean I've ever been. 400 yards out there and these waves are coming in. And I was fine if I would get my board perpendicular with the wave and it would push me, but it pushed me so fast There was no way I was thinking about popping up and surfing on it. I just held on trying not to die. But then if the surfboard was at all crooked, it would instantly flip me and tumble me underneath the wave. And I've never felt anything as powerful as that, flipping me, turning me over. And then all I could do was hold my breath and wait and then pop up, find my board, and then paddle back out and do it all over again. It's not fun. But... (laughs) And I mentioned that just to make the point that some of us know what that's like. You haven't been surfing. Some of us know what that's like in our relationships. Our relationships are like that. You have relationships that are like that this morning. You exhaust yourself. 
paddling out, getting yourself in position only to be hit and tumbled and crushed under the wave of conflict or strife or discord or difficulty to hold your breath, pop up, paddle back out only to do it over and over again, crushed, tumbled all over again. And so do you know relationships like that this morning? Relationships in which there is no joy. There's, there's so much else, but no joy. Do you believe that you might be able to know joy in them? Because Paul says you can. And so three points this morning. First of all, unity. Last week, Brent, Brent preached, and he preached on the end of chapter one. And there Paul concludes that chapter saying, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And then he goes on to give two references, two words that describe what a worthy, a manner worthy of the gospel is. And the first is united, being in, united in and around the gospel. He says, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith. So mentions union. And then he speaks of not being afraid. It says, not frightened by anything, anything by your opponents. So united inside the church and unafraid in relationships outside the church. And this is another sermon, but I can't help but thinking that those two descriptors are so untrue of so many Christians in so many churches today. Divisiveness and fear seems to be more true of us than union and, and being unafraid, but that's a different sermon. Here, Paul, at the beginning of chapter two, he takes that first description and he drills down in it a little bit more. He speaks about unity and he does so because this is his concern. His concern is not some major moral difficulty that's happening in the church, some moral issue that's not happening or some theological controversy or error. Other churches in the New Testament, he has to write to them about that, not here. His concern is that they will be whittled away on the inside relationally they'll begin to be unthreaded from one another. That's why he says, complete my joy. It's a word that literally means to fill up, like taking a glass that's half full and and pouring more liquid into it to fill it all the way up to the brim where it's even overflowing. He says, be of the same mind, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of the same soul. And I know our translation doesn't put it that way, but that's what it literally means. It means to be with sold. That's what the word is or united in soul, joined in soul. So same mind, same love, same soul. Then he ends the verse saying, thinking as one, he piles up all these words and all these phrases, trying to be as emphatic as possible in his description of what unity is. Because again, this is his fear for this church because there's nothing going on in this church right now that causes him any other concern. It's a good church. It's a fruitful church. There's so many good things happening. His fear is that some individuals within the church or some group within the church will want to take all of the attention, all of the applause, all of the focus off of all that God is doing in and around them and put it on themselves singularly and individually. And friends, I don't think I have to tell you, but I will, that if any group, any community church, family, workplace, if it doesn't have something larger, something greater, something far more important than any one person or any group of persons within it, something that's so much bigger that they're utterly not only committed to it, but enraptured by it, then unity is not possible. It's just not possible. And many of you know that quite personally right now. You know it in your marriage, you know it in your family, You know it with children, with siblings. 
you know it at work even, for you in these relationships, those that you're thinking of right now, there's no unity. There's no oneness. There's no shared life. And for some of you, it's because of you. It's because you have been the one who has taken that which is larger and greater and most important and tried to make yourself into that and to take the attention and the emotion and the focus and the conversations and turn them on you. For others of you, it's someone close to you. There's no oneness of soul. They've sucked everyone else's soul into theirs and into their needs, into their demands, and it's exhausting. There's no joy in your relationships. There's just fatigue. It's like paddling out, only to get hit by another wave, crushed beneath it, something that's so much stronger than anything you can withstand. Do you watch Ted Lasso? Everyone, yeah, now people are paying attention. I'm kind of amazed that I haven't used an illustration from this show yet. Uh, there's been two seasons, and the second season just wrapped up. And what happens in the, the end of season two is exactly what Paul is talking about here. In the episode immediately before the finale, Nate whom you know if you watch the series. He's this unathletic, bullied, nerdy, short, soft, insecure man who, who started off as the manager of the Richmond Football Club, which for you Americans is soccer. And so he, he, he starts off doing laundry and cleaning cleats, but Ted Lasso believes in him and loves him and, and draws him in and, and entrusts so much to him and really changes his life. But Nate begins to talk throughout season two about becoming the boss. The writers do a good job of setting up the finale long before you realize what they're doing because Coach Lasso has a panic attack and Nate steps in, creates a play in this pivotal game where Ted Lasso has to leave and they, they execute the play and they win. And so all the, all the praise, all the applause, all the attention from the coaches, from the players, from the media, it all comes to Nate and everybody celebrates his success, but they celebrate it as the team's success, but it begins to get to Nate and he begins to want it more and more. He begins to want it all for himself, that larger, greater, most important thing to become his, to shift to him, to bend towards him. And so he leaks this story to the press about Coach Lasso's struggle with panic attacks. So he betrays the one who loved him, betrays the one who believed in him and trusted. He sabotages the one person who, who knew him and trusted him and brought him in just so that maybe he could be the boss have the acclaim, the attention all for him. And in the midst of all of that, all the relational thickness, everything that they had built over two seasons, it's all lost, all the unity. And you have to ask yourself this morning, do you know Nate? Do you know him? Maybe you are him or someone close to you is and your family and your marriage, your friendship on staff. And why? Why do we know him? Why does that story that, that, that plot line, why does it resonate? And here's why. Point two, vanity. Paul uses two words in verse three. So look there now. These words that you'll find here are rivalry and conceit, which is a decent translation. It's not the best translation, especially the word conceit. Most English translations vary on how to translate this word. The NIV says vain conceit. New American Standard says empty conceit. The King James Version says vain glory. And that's probably the best. It's the closest but the word in Greek is literally empty glory, empty glory. It's this compound word because that's what it means to be vain. Vanity, biblically speaking, is emptiness. It's to be ephemeral. I love this word. It's been our word for the day before. We're not going to repeat it again today, but it means fleeting. 
It means it's there, and then all of a sudden it vanishes, like a, like a warm breath on a cold morning. And that's what the, the speaker of the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament is, is lamenting and decrying. He says, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Because that's what it is. It's, it's not as though he hasn't lived a great life. It's not as though he hasn't experienced all the good things that this life has to offer. But if you live this life and, and you experience all the best that this life has to offer, but that's it in and of itself, apart from anything in relationship to God or other people, if it's just the best that this life can give you and that's it, in the end, it's empty. In the end, it's vanished. Glory is weightiness. It is worth. It's beauty. It's weightiness in beauty. It's like a precious gem weighed on a scale. Vainglory is empty glorious. It's all of that, but that's vanished and it's gone. And vainglory was on the first list of the deadly sins. Originally there were eight, but pride and vainglory got collapsed into one and there became seven deadly sins. They weren't originally called deadly sins. They were originally called capital vices. Capital in the sense of head or origin. Gregory the Great said that the vices are the director generals of a howling army of sin and brokenness. It's quite a quote. A howling army. Director generals of a howling army. And when Rebecca Cognac de Young, a professor at Calvin College, when she teaches on the vices, specifically the vice of vainglory, she asks her students to list out 20 celebrities. Those that they know things about, that they're hearing about, that's caught their attention or is in the media. And she says they have no problem. Quickly, list out 20 celebrities. And so I wonder if you would do that just for a second in your mind. List off some celebrities that you know, that you've paid attention to. You know about them. You know about their life. She does that, and then she asks her students to name their heroes, and they can't. Asking them to name their heroes stumps them. They can't think of who it is that would be their hero. They can't think of people to commit to as their hero. She says they usually just default to naming their grandparents. And all the grandparents here are thinking, well, because that's the right answer. But her point, her point is that that's how pervasive and how common and how accepted vainglory is in our society and how captivated we are by people who have it. Vainglory is an inordinate desire for attention and for acclaim. It's to be image obsessed. Pride is different. Proud people inordinately desire to be the best. They inordinately desire to be superior to others. The vainglory just desire to be seen that way. They just, they just want what will get them the reputation of being the best. And whatever it is that will bring them, that's what they want. Whatever will bring the most applause, the acclaim, that's what they want. Which is why it leads to Paul's other word, which is rivalry. The English translations differ with this word as well. The New American Standard says selfishness. NIV says selfish ambition. King James Version says strife. The word is literally work for hire. It's to be a mercenary. A mercenary is someone that is paid to fight. They just want the money. They don't care about the conflict. They don't care about the issues at hand. They just want the money. It's someone who will do anything to get what they've set their heart upon. He's talking about being a relational mercenary here. To people like this, people don't actually matter. Things matter. And what people can give them matters. If they give you attention or applause or acclaim, they matter to you for that moment. Or if they give you praise or power or pleasure, then you're in the relationship. But as soon as that, that stops, you stop. It's to be a relational mercenary. And I wonder what a marriage between two relational mercenaries is like. And some of you know. Or what it's like to work for a relational mercenary. Again, some of you know. 
or what it's like to be in a family of relational mercenaries. Again, some of you know. We know what this is like. We all do because this is what life is like in this world. This is one of our world's inescapable realities because this is what sin and its power does to us and has done to us into our world. It creates a lust for empty glory leading to deforming us and devolving us into relational mercenaries. That's Paul's description here for sin and its power. And we all know it. And we all know that it makes unity impossible. Oneness, shared life possible. And so what can be done? Well, point three, emptying. Unity and vanity and now emptying. In verse five, Paul starts talking about Jesus. And some of you are thinking, finally, yes. He begins to talk about Jesus and he does so in a very poetic fashion. Verses six through 11, you can hear the poetry and the sounds of the words and the rhythms, especially in the original language, which has led many to think that this is some sort of hymn that was sung in the early church about Jesus or potentially a creed that was recited in worship. Regardless, it's at the very center of Paul's letter here. He puts it at the very heart of this letter. And it is the groundwork for all of the self-sacrificing unity that he's urging them toward. And at the heart of it all, everything that's said or sung about Jesus is this notion of self-emptying. And I've got to clear up something because in verse six, Paul says, though he's in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. So he emptied himself. Other translations say made himself nothing, but literally it's he emptied himself. And it's led many people throughout the centuries to think, oh, he emptied himself of deity. In other words, he was God before he became human, but when he became human, he stopped being divine. Then he became human again somehow. It's not what Paul's saying. In fact, Paul is saying the exact opposite. And the opposite of that is what Paul's very point is. The point of verse six is that Jesus was indeed already equal with God before becoming human. And the decision to become human wasn't a decision to stop being divine. It was a decision to reveal what true deity is, what it truly really means for God to be God. And he's nothing like us. That's what Paul is saying. He's nothing like us in our sin or in our brokenness or in our rivalry or in our conceit. Because He's not one who sacrifices his rivals for himself. In fact, he is the one who sacrifices himself for the sake of his rivals. He doesn't grasp. You hear that word? It's a a famous word throughout the scriptures. Jacob's the grasper. So many people grasp throughout the scriptures. Some of you grasp. Some of you grasp in self-protective ways to hold on to that which is yours. And some of you grasp in in self-asserting ways, uh, things that aren't yours, that haven't been given to you. God doesn't grasp. He does not grasp. He empties himself. In fact, some scholars think that verse six should not be translated, although he existed in the form of God, rather because he existed in the form of God, he took on flesh and emptied himself because that's who God is. That's what is most true of God, that he empties himself for the sake of others. Because Jesus willingly gave up all the prerogatives, all the praise of God in heaven, all the public recognition. As we say at our Eucharist of angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, he gave it all up for you to come here in a manner that no one, no one noticed, not as a king, not as a celebrity, but as a slave. It says servant in our translation. All English translations soft pedal that word. It's the word slave, probably because of our history of all the atrocities committed in American slavery, and we still bear that shame. And so we just translated as servant. It's slave. He became a slave. So don't miss the contrast. 
Paul's concerned about people sinking empty glory in order to become rivals. And Jesus here empties himself of true glory and becomes a slave. And it's not just a contrast. It's also an exchange. Because Jesus took the death that self-consumed, empty glory seekers like us deserve. Vanity will kill you. Eventually, that's, that's where it will lead. It'll lead to death, literal death, figurative death, death of your marriage, death of your friendships, death of a church. They'll kill it. And Jesus died under the weight of all of our empty vanity. He died to forgive us, but not just to forgive us, but to transform us, to change us, to share the divine humility that Paul speaks of here with us. And we might become different. Do you notice that at the beginning of chapter two, Paul says, do you have any encouragement from being in Christ? The obvious answer is yes. Any, any comfort from his love for you? Any participation in the spirit that make my joy complete by being like-minded and counting others as more significant than yourself? He says, you can do that because that's who you are now. That's who God is and that's who you are now. It's an entirely new way of life that you've been drawn up into with the result that unity is possible and joy in unity is possible. Do you know who can have joy in their relationships? Those who are emptying themselves out for one another, that's who can know joy in their relationships. Not those who are grasping after empty glory or anything else, but those who are emptying themselves. That's why Paul says, count others more significant than yourselves and you will know joy. That is what God has done for you. God has counted you as more important than himself. God has. And if you watch Ted Lasso, you see that's also what Coach Lasso did with Nate. He doesn't confront him. He doesn't fire him. He doesn't sabotage him back. He forgives him. And then he waits for Nate to come to him and to apologize to him and to return to him. In fact, he has this great line. He's, this series is full of one-liners, but he says, you know my philosophy on cats, babies, and apologies. You've got to let them come to you. And he does. He waits on Nate to come to him. He empties himself. He pours himself out and then waits. And what if, what if you did that in your marriage? What would happen to your marriage if you emptied yourself out and then you waited? Or in your parenting, you emptied yourself out and then you waited. Or in your workplace or kids at your school, you emptied yourself and then you waited. What would happen? What would happen is that you would know joy. Because joy is a taste of the very life of God. It is his life and it is his love washing over you and through you. It is a taste of his very life. And it's known as he is known in self-emptying. And so believe the gospel, embrace Jesus, and count others as more significant, more important than yourself. And you will know joy even in your relationships. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you will pour out your spirit upon us that we might know joy. You would do so for the sake of Jesus, even in those most difficult situations and places and circumstances that we face. May we know joy. May you give us patience. May you give us the humility of God, the very patience of God to empty ourselves out and to wait. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.